The Adventures of Elizabeth Crown presents Daughter of the Deep, Episode 2. As Elizabeth examined herself in the ovular mirror, she grimaced at the idea of going downstairs. Her room was so tranquil and private, and the thought of donning an evening gown, affixing her mother's glass earrings, and pinning her bob into a passably formal arrangement was enough to give her a migraine. She had tested the goose-down mattress and would just assume read a book by lamplight. The last thing she needed was Greta's directionless babble. But Elizabeth sighed gutturally and pulled herself away from the powder room. She slipped into the hallway and descended the carpeted staircase to the dining room, which was already alive with conversation. At least forty guests were clumped around tables, holding glasses of wine and cognac, leaning against chairs, gesticulating, sharing anecdotes. Men joked and women laughed along. Some children sat silently at the tables, their eyes glazed over. Waiters weaved through the packs with trays of hors d'oeuvres. Elizabeth, over here, called Calvin, waving from a distant corner. Elizabeth nimbly navigated the room, and she forced a smile as Calvin kissed her on the cheek. Each time Elizabeth encountered Calvin, he appeared even more handsome. Now, in a black tuxedo and red cummerbund, even his bow tie was impeccably knotted. Oh, Elizabeth, cried Greta, throwing her arms around Elizabeth's neck. I'm so happy you're here. The way she ululated, Greta sounded as if they hadn't seen each other in years. Elizabeth wriggled away from the embrace and patted Greta's gloved hands. Then she nearly did a double take. The girl was unrecognizably pretty tonight, with her silken frock and feathered headband. The outfit was cast entirely in white, against which her black-painted eyelashes contrasted sharply. "'Did you have a nice afternoon?' Greta pattered. "'I sure hope you did. We've been having such a nice stay here, haven't we, dear?' In the corner of her eye, Elizabeth caught Calvin's expression— a tightness in his lips, a furrow in his brow that betrayed his embarrassment. This surprised Elizabeth, but not nearly as much as the scent of alcohol on Greta's breath. It's a lovely hotel, said Elizabeth tersely. Is this our table? Oh, yes, right here. We picked the corner. I always love the corner table, don't you? You can see everything. Just then, a clanging sound permeated the room, and all chatter drew to a halt. The man who stood at the entrance was strikingly large, tall and rotund, with a potato-shaped head. His dinner jacket was unbuttoned, and his dress shirt barely contained his girth. Even his mustache was impressively bushy, and his round glasses accentuated the bigness of his face. "'Ladies and gentlemen, good evening,' he proclaimed. His voice was a fusion of northeastern drawl and desperate wheezing. 
My name is Harold Kane, and I am the owner of this hotel. It's an honor to have you here tonight, and I hope your accommodations are satisfactory. He nervously swirled a glass of port in his right hand as he groped his chin with his left. I recall it was eight years ago we hosted our first race on Lake Onagano, and I remember thinking this should be a yearly event. This will put Onagano on the map. Eight years later, I think it has. Here, here agreed a quartet of voices. But for me, this is a special event, continued Mr. Kane. In the past, we have opened the competition to swimmers from across the country. This year, at the behest of my good friend, Mr. Routley, we have invited only two. Elizabeth swallowed hard. She knew all this already. Calvin had explained the unusual circumstances of the race on the long drive here. But Elizabeth kept stealing glances at Greta, who seemed to wobble in her chair. She looked less like an athlete than a distracted adolescent. She groped the stem of her wine glass like a barbell. Mr. Kane toddled toward one of the tables. Elizabeth craned her neck to see the trio from that morning. The elder man, the tall younger man, and the dark-haired beauty, Samara Kichaste. The men were predictably dressed in dark suits, but Samara wore a black dress that cut diagonally across her bust. A pearled crown rested in her hair, glittering divinely. As usual, their expressions were stony and flat, as if the rest of the room were empty. Most of you know Mr. Routley's story, said Mr. Kane, his audience quietly captivated. Routley Bond is one of the most trusted companies in the stationary business. His philanthropy is the pride of Onagano County, but his most remarkable achievement is a thing more personal. Kelvin shifted in his seat and swallowed a gulp of ice water. He winced and drew a lemon seed from his mouth. Mr. Rowdley is an avid sailor, Mr. Kane said. Some years ago, he took a sailing trip to Greece, and he found himself anchored off the remote island of Meros. He took a dinghy to the beach, and the moment he reached those white shores, he saw something that would change his life forever. Mr. Kane raised a massive hand toward Samara. A 12-year-old girl lying in the sand. She was unconscious. Her clothes were tattered. Mr. Outley was amazed, and he knew he couldn't leave her alone in the burning sun. So he carried her in his boat and sailed her to the mainland. He nursed her back to health, and from that day on, Mr. Routley has raised her like a daughter. And today, I think we can agree, we are all grateful for that charity. 
Behold the beautiful Samara Kichaste, the pearl of the Aegean, and, if rumor holds true, the greatest female swimmer ever to live. The dining room erupted in applause. Amid the cheers and whistles, Samara rose from her chair, bowed her head stoically, and sat down again, her expression resolutely unchanged. It was only when the ovation died down that Mr. Kane added, And lest we forget, her competition, the esteemed Greta Merriweather, winner of 12 consecutive races, and please join me in welcoming her as well. If the clapping for Samara had been a monsoon, the applause that followed was a light drizzle. Most of the diners turned their heads and smiled politely, though some of them in the wrong direction, clearly confused as to which young woman Greta was. Mr. Kane raised a glass and toasted both competitors, but the damage had already been done. As the soups and salads were laid out in tandem, Calvin grew even quieter, angling his head farther away from his wife. Greta ordered another glass of wine, which he proceeded to drink like a cup of lemonade, and it occurred to Elizabeth that the twenty-year-old had probably abstained the majority of her brief life. By the time the entrees arrived, Greta's mania had fizzled. She went quiet, slumped in her chair, and gazing at nothing. "'Why don't you eat your rump steak, darling?' coaxed Calvin. "'You need your energy.' "'What does it matter?' she muttered. "'I don't stand a chance anyway.' Elizabeth pulled back her chair and mopped her mouth with a napkin. "'Pardon me,' she said. "'Have to visit the ladies.' No sooner had Elizabeth entered the adjacent corridor and tracked down the lavatory than she heard Greta calling her name. "'Oh, Elizabeth, wait up!' There was no escape. An elder woman was already waiting sternly outside the lavatory door. Elizabeth yearned to sneak upstairs, but that was impossible now that Greta had spotted her. When Greta arrived, she nearly bowled into Elizabeth, who grabbed her friend by the shoulders. "'Oh, I'm sorry,' slurred Greta, chuckling lazily. "'I seem to have lost my footing. Good thing I'm not a runner.' "'Greta,' Elizabeth hissed. "'Get a grip, will you?' Greta's head lolled to the side. "'Oh, Elizabeth, there's nothing to worry about. I'm already doomed, aren't I?' "'Knock it off, Greta. I won't stand for self-pity.' Greta's eyes widened with melodramatic offense. It's not self-pity. It's just a little galley humor, that's all. It's gallows humor, corrected Elizabeth. Now come here. She grabbed Greta by the arm and yanked her down the hall, toward a side door that led outside. Elizabeth felt lukewarm air wash over her as they stepped into the gravel lot. A single lamp glowed warmly above, attracting a nebula of fluttering moths. A final blotch of red lingered beyond the mountains, but the rest of the sky had resigned itself to twilight. "'What in blazes is wrong with you?' 
chided Elizabeth. You're blubbering like a schoolgirl. Oh, Liz, murmured Greta. Then she was quiet. Her drowsy eyes wandered, as if she were puzzling out where she was. She rubbed her cheek and sniffed dryly. <sighs> to be honest, I'm not sure what I'm doing here. You're trying to win a race, Elizabeth barked. Because you're a swimmer, and that's what swimmers do. But... Greta looked up, her eyes foggy. Why did they invite me? If Summer is so good, I don't stand a chance. I truly don't. I don't think there's a girl in the whole country who can swim like she can, and... Now she pouted, gazing off at the opaque outlines of mountains. I'm spoiled, Liz. I know that. I keep winning. I've been placing first for months. And maybe I ought to lose. Someone should make a fool of me. Maybe it'll make me humble, but... She wagged her head and spread her fingers over her face. Calvin's been so good to me. He's supported me every step of the way. And Mother and you and everybody. I can't let them down. If I don't make it to Paris, I don't know what I'll do. Well, you can't drink your way to the Olympics, Elizabeth retorted. And even if you could, you'd never make the cut. You're the most talentless lush I ever met. Greta grimaced at this, and she teetered between laughter and tears. Elizabeth knew she was supposed to hug her then, but she wavered. How long had they known each other? Nearly 14 years, she realized. They had met playing hopscotch on a Pittsburgh sidewalk. Elizabeth was 16. Greta was 6. Elizabeth never had a younger sister, so the neighborhood had provided her one. She had loved to push Greta in the swing set, teach her checkers, and share her mother's zucchini bread. Throughout those early years, Greta had served as a rubbery sidekick, a welcome tag-along, following Elizabeth everywhere. They could climb trees and race each other around the block. Together, they had no use for the stickball teams that rejected them. Never mind that Greta was ten years younger. The girl had always been around, eager for a little attention. And as far as Elizabeth was concerned, they were pals. But many years had passed, and their reunion had felt forced. When Greta had invited her to Lake Onagano, Elizabeth was tentative. She liked the adult version of Greta, an athlete, a minor celebrity, a happy wife. She was sweet and gracious, certainly. Yet after a week in Chautauqua, Elizabeth was ready to part company. The girl was an anxious mess, and she required constant coaching and cajoling. She fished for niceties, compliments, words of encouragement. Elizabeth realized only a pillar of resolve like Calvin could attend to so many needs. Well, said Elizabeth slowly, I might as well tell you, I brought a gift for you. Greta's ears pricked up. A gift? Yes, and you're going to love it. Oh, Elizabeth, you shouldn't have. What is it? I'll tell you tomorrow, she said. But only after you swim this race. 
which, if you recall, is what you came here to do. At this, Greta doddered, smiled self-consciously, and said, I'm being such a brat, aren't I? And you'll be all the brattier if you don't get some shut-eye, said Elizabeth. Now get upstairs and set your alarm. I'll tell Calvin. Oh, Liz, you're... Not another word. You're only getting five hours of sleep as it is. Now go! Greta bit her lip and scooted toward the door. And drink a glass of water, Elizabeth called after. When she saw that the coast was clear, Elizabeth slinked down the hallway. Numbers flashed past her. 302, 303, 304, as did the framed portraits and oil lamps that lighted her path. Floorboards creaked beneath the carpet, but Elizabeth persisted, stopping only when she reached the door to room 313. Elizabeth dug into her purse and drew a lockpick. She examined it in the light, blew some dust off its surface, and wiped it against the side of her evening gown. She wished she'd had time to change, but it was only a matter of time before dinner ended and the guests would retire to their rooms. Carefully, she aimed at the lock's opening. The pick slithered inside, stopping only when it had reached the deeply buried pin. Elizabeth! She ripped the pick out of the door and whirled around, holding her incriminating tool behind her back. There, at the other end of the corridor, stood Calvin, who was striding toward her. I thought that was you, he said. His voice warbled with forced geniality. Have you seen Greta? Oh, Elizabeth said, rubbing her forehead. I completely forgot to tell you. She went to bed. Did she? Calvin closed his eyes, looking relieved. Thank God. That was quite a show, wasn't it? It's just nerves. She'll be fine. Yes. Calvin was now standing directly in front of Elizabeth. He pressed his back against the wallpaper and flattened himself. I suppose I should have known. Known? Well, when you're courting... He shook his head. There are signs, of course, but you ignore them because, well, you're in love. And you're not seeing straight. Ah, said Elizabeth. Then you get married and... I mean, she's wonderful, of course, but I don't think it's any secret. She's a handful, don't you think? Oh, I don't know, Elizabeth hedged. It's just... When we met, she seemed so confident, so adventurous, a competitive swimmer. It all seemed so romantic. And I love to support her, I do, but she's hard on herself. She's so fragile. Sometimes I don't know what she's thinking. I'm sure it'll be fine, Elizabeth said impatiently. I just wish she could be more independent, Calvin said his voice low. I like independent girls. Someone in command of her own life. Someone, well, someone like you, actually. Calvin rolled his head sideways and looked at Elizabeth. His salacious gaze 
might have shocked her. Another girl would have felt frightened, betrayed, scandalized, tantalized. But Elizabeth felt only annoyed. How predictable, she thought, didn't even make it to his cotton anniversary. She spoke slowly, enunciating every syllable. I think you should go to bed, Cal. Calvin was taken aback. His perfect cheeks reddened, and his eyes seemed to tremble in their sockets. His fingers rubbed against his thumb with unconscious intensity. There was something satisfying about watching such a handsome man appear so stunned. He slid along the wall, then righted himself, adjusted his dinner jacket, and said, I- I'm sorry, Liz, I-, I don't know what came over me. I think you know exactly what came over you, Elizabeth shot back, and it's nothing a cold shower won't fix. Kelvin blinked. He seemed to consider this advice. He bowed awkwardly, whispering, Good night, Elizabeth, and scuttled down the hall. Elizabeth shook her head. The moment Calvin rounded the corner, she jammed the pick into the lock, twisted it easily, and the door drifted open. A shard of light sliced across the chamber. The geography was familiar. A tall wardrobe, a wooden chest, and an oil lamp stationed on the nightstand. Orange lamplight illuminated a bed whose silky curtains were wrapped around the bedposts. Even the quilt was similar to the one in Elizabeth's room, a kaleidoscope of embroidered swatches. But one thing was different. Beyond the bed, on the far side of the room, stood a massive object. Elizabeth gently shut the door and tiptoed across the carpet, eyes trained on the peculiar artifact. The bed cast a shadow over its rectangular mass, but Elizabeth could clearly discern its smooth surfaces. It was a glass box, easily six feet long and four feet wide. The cloudy glass panels were fused together in a simple lead frame. The box had no lid, but was half filled with greenish water. Elizabeth knelt down beside the massive container. She dipped a finger into the liquid and dabbed her tongue. She tasted salt. Elizabeth heard the tinkle of keys outside. She sprang across the floor, darted around the bed, and launched herself at the wardrobe. She threw open its double doors, revealing a multicolored clump of dresses and blouses. She swiped the garments aside and stuffed herself into the wardrobe. Then she grabbed the doors and swiftly shut them behind her. Elizabeth held her breath as the lock clicked and a figure stepped into the room. A tight slit between the wardrobe's doors allowed Elizabeth to peer outward, but all she could see was a human shadow cast across the carpet. She heard low and muffled speech, heavy and male, then the brief reply of a feminine voice. The door closed, darkening the atmosphere once more, and the room fell quiet. 
Samara Kechaste wafted into view. She stood there for a long moment, suspended in the dead air. She reached a delicate hand to the bedpost and leaned sullenly against it. Then she grasped her crown and removed it from her head, drawing black strands from her scalp. She released one pin after another, allowing locks of hair to tumble down her neck and shoulders. Then she set about the difficult task of unbuttoning her gown. Gradually, its back split open, and the heavy garment slid from her body and crumpled on the floor. What remained were a lavender-colored corset and a pair of bloomers, which ended at the knee. Samara stepped away from the discarded dress, and Elizabeth shuddered with awe. The tops of Samara's naked shins shimmered with a viscous texture. Farther down her legs, the skin was scaly and silver. Prismatic hints of color reminded Elizabeth of rainbow trout. Toward the ankle, the colors converged into a minty shade, which deepened along her foot. From her heel, five cartilaginous digits splayed outward, webbed together with rubbery flesh. Except for the fishy surface, they looked exactly like the feet of a duck. Samara sighed. Then, without warning, she approached the wardrobe and opened its doors. You've been listening to Daughter of the Deep, Episode 2. Music by Naoya Sakamata and Sixomatic. An earlier version of this story first appeared in Nebula Rift. You can read more stories like it at fictionmagazines.com. If you like what you're listening to, you may also like The Mysterious Tongue of Dr. Vermilion and other stories, now available on Amazon and Kindle. For more information about the exciting field of uncanology, visit elizabethcrown.net. Thank you for listening.